Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, thank you so much for the birth of your son, for sending him. We know and we celebrate his birth, uh, yet we also know, God, that you sent him to die. And so as we enter this morning with joy and hope, and a desire to celebrate. We also want to get the truth, God, and even though that may be somber, even for a celebratory occasion such as this, uh, we want the truth to be told in Jesus' name, amen. Some of us are very, very familiar with the Christmas story. We're very familiar with the songs associated with it and that you don't even need the words to them, you just sing along, right? You just kind of go with it. We've been listening to KOIT like all week long because it's like the Christmas station, right? Usually I never listen to that. I never even knew it existed, but my kids asked for Christmas music when I was driving them to school one day. I was like, where can I find this? And so I just pressed the scan and it finally went. And so that's where it's been all week long. It's been really great. But how true the Christmas story is to us is evidenced by the way that we live. How true those songs resonate in our hearts is also evidenced by the conduct of our lives. Now, for some of us, we might be like the shepherds, just in wonderment and marvel at the things revealed to us through God's messengers. And perhaps some of us are like the wise men who just gave freely and joyfully and generously to Jesus, which some of us want to do with our lives, with our resources, and maybe some of us the Christmas story is just a really disturbing story because the birth of Jesus means that we need to unseat ourselves from our own throne. And so just like Herod, Herod was threatened at the birth of Jesus. So we too may be threatened that we might lose something because Jesus is on the scene. Now others of us just aren't sure who we identify ourselves with and we aren't even sure if this Christmas story is even true. Is this just kind of like folklore? Is this a fairy tale? Whatever this thing is. Well, I think there are some really important questions for us to address no matter who we identify ourselves with in the Christmas story, if anyone at all. Now, one of those questions is, who is this baby named Jesus? And a second important question is, why was he born? So, sure, there are some other important questions of the, you know, what, where, why, how, all those types of things. But I think the who and the why are the pretty essential questions to address at this Christmas service. Now, in the Bible, names are extremely significant. They tell us a lot about an individual. And so the two names associated with this baby and the question of who this baby is and why he was born can be really found out by his name and the meaning of his name. So let's first take a look at the name we find in verse 23, and it's the name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. 
So we first find this name, we first find this account in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it's prophesied about Jesus, and this is what it reads. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now there are hundreds of prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. Hundreds of prophecies about Jesus found in the Old Testament. And how exciting it is to see the arrival of Jesus fulfill all of those prophecies without any mistakes. None. It's perfect. That God came to us. He came seeking after us, looking for us, all in accordance to God's plan of establishing a relationship with us ever since we lost that communion with Him in the Garden of Eden. He's been seeking to reconcile, restore us to himself. And so when we first attempted to put ourselves in the place of God in Genesis, we separated from him. And how gracious of God to allow that sin to take place and to use that and to take our place of judgment for the sin we committed back then. So Jesus took our place of judgment by his death on the cross. And many of the Christmas songs that we will sing later on today are about the love of Jesus and God becoming a human, dwelling with us so that we could meet him in the most real and of tangible ways. Now, have you ever thought about that? That God made himself known to man by making himself man through the person of Jesus. I ask you, how else would we know God? How else would we know God? How else do we know of other people in history? We have historical records of them, right? The reason why you know Napoleon exists is not because you met him, even though you might be looking down at him. I hear he's short, but anyway. But we have historical records about them. Right? People have recorded information about them, and that's what we have in the Bible, a history, a record of God, a record of Jesus, a record of Emmanuel, God with us. Now let's look at the second name, verse 25. And he called his name Jesus. Now what does Jesus mean? It means Jehovah is salvation. That is the mission. That is the purpose of Jesus. So you look back to the Old Testament and you read of the Jews looking, hoping for a deliverer, hoping for salvation. Now, it's been 2,000 years since the birth of Jesus who came to a world in distress. And we still live in a world of distress. I think... Part of why Jesus has not returned yet is because God is showing the world that we do indeed need him. That after 2,000 years, we aren't any better. And that it's impossible to live in peace with one another, even though we've met Jesus. Even though we've lived and we've been able to evolve all these thousands of years, but we still can't live in peace. We have capabilities and resources that people didn't have in the past, right? We have all the studies, case studies, research in communication, in sociology, in psychology, in history, but we can't get along any better. And this just isn't within our country. We can't get along with other countries. People can't get along within their own countries. We can't get along anywhere. There are families who can't get along. Yet we have all of the resources in the world, thousands of years worth of resources and history and case studies. Have you ever thought about that? Wouldn't we be better 
We have technology that allows us to communicate with space probes billions of miles away. Billions. But we can't communicate with our spouses and our children across a dining room table. We've never been more advanced in medical science, in environmental science, but take a look at us. Take a look at us. Take a look at our planet. Take a look at people. We have diseases today that have never existed before. We have adult diseases in children, and we have children's diseases in adults. Like, it's getting really messed up. And we know so much, right? We know so much about science, but our planet has never been in a worse situation. We're better? I think this is a testament to sin. This is a testament to sin and the reality that Sin separates us from God, and it separates us from one another. What's happening to us is not what God originally intended. There's so much wrong with the world, and there is a lot of blame that we can throw around at various sources, but the truth of the matter is that what's wrong with the world is me. Just look in the mirror. That's what's wrong with the world. You. And it's not because of what you've done or what I've done, which can be classified as sin. It starts with me and it starts with you because we are sinful. We have a sin nature inside of us. And we need a deliverer to deliver that sin nature away from us. And you and I can't remove that on our own. We can't do it. We can modify all the behaviors we want. We can change our morality. We can change our actions. We can change our words that we classify all as sinful but we can't remove the sin nature that is inside of us. We need help with that. We need to be delivered from that. We need to be saved from that. And the only way to rid of yourself of that sin nature is that that debt has to be paid for you so that you can be free from it. And the only way to pay for it is death. Death. But if you pay with your own life, it's only for you. And you can't pay it for someone else. You can't pay for anyone else because you have your own debt to pay for. Enter Jesus, who was without sin. And because Jesus was sinless, he could pay for yours. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. No one else can pay for your debt of sin. No one else. Who else in the history of the world was sinless? Who didn't have their own sins to pay off? Man, Pastor Albert, aren't you supposed to be talking about happy stuff today? I mean, you're talking about sin. Talking about families not getting along. You're talking about all this stuff. I mean, aren't you supposed to talk about like Rudolph or something? It's all the sin talk during Christmas. What's up with that? I can't lie to you. And since you're here, I need to tell you the truth. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I can give you a lot of fluff. I am good at making up fluff. I just talked to my wife. I'm good at it. I'm good at making stuff up on the fly. I can do that. I can give you a motivational speech on how to be a better person, on what it takes and all that kind of stuff. I can do that on how to love people better. I can do all that. I can even give you stock picks for the upcoming year because I'm good at that too. I can do that. But whatever I give you, 
what good is it if it's just a bunch of stuff, but you still lose your soul because you don't have the faith that Jesus demands? It doesn't do you any good. Now, some will say that they have faith. I have faith. But what definition of faith are you using? Is it the definition that Jesus gave? Because if you think of faith as a product, you're wrong, you're off. It's not. If it's something that can be given to you or something that you can buy, you're off. You can't do that. Faith, believing in God, believing in his word, has some really basic qualities to it. The faith Jesus talks about engages your heart. It engages your mind. It engages your will. And I think most people recognize that the heart and the will must engage in faith. There's really little debate about that, right? Most people will agree, yeah, heart, I see that. Yes, will, I see that. What I think most people find difficulty with in regards to faith is in regards to their mind, in regards to the intellect, that they don't bridge one another. But the thing is, in faith, there is a knowledge element. There is an intellectual element attached to faith. Nowhere in the Bible are we encouraged to have blind faith or just accept it. Just do that. Nowhere. We aren't instructed in the Bible to disregard our mind or to disregard our intellect. In fact, our faith is to seek understanding. It is to seek meaning. The Bible encourages us to investigate, to interrogate, to examine the evidence. There are reasons. There is logic involved in entrusting our hearts to the truths of Jesus. Logic and reasoning are not mutually exclusive to faith. Those who argue against faith will say that, you know, the facts just aren't verifiable and you know that faith, it just lacks empirical data. It's just not there. It's just what happens privately in one's mind. And that is just simply untrue. I told you that there are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Hundreds. I believe it's 350. All of them fulfilled to the T. None of them wrong. That's not evidence? That's not evidence? Are you kidding me? Those who argue against the Christian faith have disregarded that history. Events that actually happen, which are verifiable and full of empirical data. Where do secular archaeologists go? The Bible. Where do they dig up these artifacts? Where do they dig up these so-called lost cities and then find them? It's in the Bible. Of course, faith involves the heart and the will. But the Christian faith incorporates the intellect. It must. If this was not true, why were all Ivy League schools except for one established by Christians? You ever thought about that? Ivy League schools. I'm not talking about schools that are unknown to the world. These are the premier higher ed places of the world. Is it because we don't care about knowledge? Is that why Harvard was established? Because they don't care about knowledge? Maybe, I don't know. It's foolish of the world to believe that Christians don't consider knowledge, logic, and reason. Because who established those premier universities of the world? So faith has the components of the heart, it has the components of the will and the intellect, but at some point it does have to move to belief. Where one must choose to believe, where it moves from what's in one's mind 
to committing one's life into that belief. The evidence is there. The evidence is readily available. But not everyone will commit to looking it through. Not everyone will research the evidence. People spend more time Christmas shopping than they do at looking at why Christmas was ever first ever established. All the evidence about your eternity is available to you, but you spend more time Christmas shopping than looking at your eternal life. Bizarre. But the evidence is all there for you. It's all there. Nothing is hidden. And after you see the evidence, when it fits in your mind and it fits in your heart and it fits your will, will you trust it? Will you trust it? Will you believe it? Because faith has to migrate to trusting and believing it. There has to be a time when it has to be exercised, when it has to be lived out. You know, this winter, actually for the past several winters, I wanted my kids to learn how to ski. I really want them to learn how to ski. I, I want to enjoy that with them. I want to do that with them. But every year they've balked at the idea of learning how to ski, and which I understand because you know, it's, it, it's wet and it's cold. And you know, when you're a little kid, you're like, what? Well, I, I'll build a snowman. Right? I want to reenact Elsa and Anna. I want to make Olaf. Like, that's what I want to do. And they much prefer, like, the beach when it's warm, you know, and collecting sand dollars. And, you know, they like that. And skiing is something that I'd like them to learn. But, you know, I'm not going to force them because it's not something that they need to survive or something that they're going to die because they don't know how to do it. So there is an activity that I force them that they have to know how to do. Swimming. There's no choice, right? It's a non-negotiable in our family. You have to learn how to swim. Now, let's say I want them to learn how to swim. So to learn anything, we do what everyone else does. We go to YouTube, right? <laughs> so we go to YouTube. We put up, how do I learn how to swim? So we look at all of the videos that are available on learning how to swim. And in fact, they can even show you everything they've learned on the video because they can simulate floating. Like they'll just lie on the rug in the area rug. They'll just simulate floating. Dad, how am I doing? I'm doing. I'm right. I'm floating. All right. Look, Dad, I can hold my breath. I can exhale underwater. And I can breathe outside of water. And I can do all this stuff. And Dad, you know what I learned today? I learned how to tread water. Check me out, Dad. And I learned how to do the freestyle today. And then I did the backstroke. And I can do the breaststroke. And I can do the butterfly. And I can do the crawl. I can do all this other stuff. Dad, I'm an awesome swimmer. I am awesome. Really? Where have you swam? I can swim from this side of the living room to that side. Check me out. See? See? I can swim all over the house, Dad. I can go upstairs. I can go all over the house. You don't know how to swim. You don't know how to swim. In order for you to know how to swim, you have to get in the water. No matter how long you can hold your breath, no matter how well you can replicate strokes and kicks, pretend to float on dry land, you haven't swam. You haven't swam. All the technique can be in your head. You know it flawlessly. You, you know Michael Phelps exact stroke and you can do it and you can believe in all your heart that you know how to swim because you can do it on dry land 
you've been swimming all over the house, but you really haven't fully committed to swim because you haven't entered into the water. This is where the faith of some people are. They claim to believe in Jesus. They claim to know all this stuff. They can quote Bible stories to you. They can even counsel you on different things, but they've never committed into getting into the water. You know, you can swim around the area rug and in the dining table, but I put you in the middle of the ocean, put you off of the yacht, you're going to drown. No matter how many YouTube videos you've seen, no matter how many times, you're going to drown. You know that learning how to swim will save you from drowning, but you haven't committed even though you know that. And you can't say you're a swimmer because you know it in your heart, because you know it intellectually, or because you will it. You can say you're a swimmer when you swim. That's when you can say you're a swimmer. You have to commit to entering into the water. You have to experience swimming in water. See, to experience Jesus, you have to experience his presence. You have to experience his power. And some may claim to know Jesus, but you've never experienced that. You're not swimming. You're in the dining room pretending to hold your breath and pretending to float and all this stuff. You might know the biography of Jesus from the Gospels. You might know the prophecies from the Old Testament. And you might even know some other things about the Bible because you've attended church at some point in your life. You might even agree to whom Jesus says he is. But until you've experienced his presence and his power in your life, you've never entered the water. It's just head knowledge. You're just YouTubing it. It's all you're doing. You're pretending in your living room. The only way to experience the immense grace and the forgiveness and power of God is to commit to it and jump in the water. Jump into that sea of love. That's when the Christmas songs you've sung in your entire life and this morning become real. And that they're more than just words to some familiar melody. That it actually touches you in a way that you know God is real. That he sent his son to you. That's when it turns from a simple song to songs of worship and praise. Now there may be some of you who know about Jesus. But you don't know him personally. You've just been YouTube in it. You've just been practicing in your living room. You've just been like looking from afar. Jump in. Commit. Commit this morning. You're not here by accident. You're not here by accident. God loves you so much that you had to listen to me. <laughs> he loves you. He's inviting you to jump in and he's in the water with you. Jesus was sent to us on this earth. It wasn't like from afar, like, yeah, jump in and uh, I'll throw a raft to you or something. He's in it. Come in. Right? He's in it with you to enter into that vast sea of grace, into that vast sea of forgiveness. And for those of you who are ready to enter into the presence of Jesus, maybe you need some help. It's kind of scary. Maybe you need to come down the ladder and like, be escorted down there. So I'm going to coach you in a prayer. I'm going to help you come down a ladder and then come out to the water. And so you can just pray this in your mind. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm not as strong as I thought I was. That I'm more sinful 
than I thought I was. And I know that through you, I'm completely accepted. I'm fully received. Thank you for taking on my debt, for paying for my sins, and forgiving me for those things. I receive you by faith as my deliverer, as my savior. Help me to move from just what's in my head to committing and experiencing your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me leave you with John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son. I pray, Lord, for those who know about you but don't have a relationship with you. I pray that their hearts are softened, that their minds are open to receive you as their Lord and Savior. Father, I pray for miracles to happen because in our Western world, Lord, there's so much that we depend on, rely on, that we there's so much confusion, and yet you make your gospel so simple. The evidence around us that are a world in distress and we need a Savior are very evident. The thousands of years that have passed where humans are trying to better themselves and better society have simply not worked. We know that's true. And yet we keep doing the same thing. That's the definition of insanity. Thank you, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you, Jehovah is our salvation, Jesus. Amen.